seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Everybody to today's episode of the Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and joining me today on the program is someone who goes way, way back to the early days of DPS. For those of you who have been with me for the for the duration, or for those of you who discovered DPS uh, recently, but went back and binge watched uh, or binge listened, I should say, all of our episodes. Which there are a lot of you out there. A lot of the episodes from years ago still get tons of listens on a weekly basis. You will be familiar with the guy that I'm about to chat with today. Uh, He's a man who writes at a faster pace than most of us can read. He's a man uh, who has a a, a blog, a column with New York Magazine's Intelligencer blog. Eric Levitz, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I won't say that your, your career has taken a massive leap since you were on the show. I think you were episode three, if I'm not mistaken. You had, you had a, a column and you were a known entity. But I got to say, in the past couple of years, you've really established yourself as a really credible and unique voice on the progressive left in the media scene. For those of you listeners out there who don't read Eric on a regular basis, you really should. He's a guy who, if I do say so myself, uh, is a really important voice for challenging people like myself on the far left, on the hard left, the democratic socialist left, sort of challenging us out of our perhaps sometimes more dogmatic or unexamined positions. Whether I agree or disagree, uh, Eric, your columns are always very much worth reading and very thought-provoking. So I just wanted to sort of juice you up a little bit before we get started. Yeah, thanks a lot. No, yeah. So since we last talked, I've really secured my my position in the the middle tier of the, the PMC, the uh, professional managerial <laughs> class. Now, I, I sort of see reality from, you know, this like uh, 10,000 feet, a little bit up above you peasants. And I, yeah. I really have, it gives me clarity that can can use the challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, some of your colleagues have been at it for much longer and they're, I, I won't name names. Yes. I'll keep you uh, kosher here in terms of, uh, you know, being, being clean here about your colleagues on the inte- intelligence or beat. Um, all extremely intelligent people. Some of them, however, are not so kind to our boy Bernie. Um, anyway, moving along. Uh, yeah. You remain grounded nonetheless. You're a guy who who ought to be taken seriously by a lot of people. Um, and you have some really fascinating columns. Uh, that, like I said, they come out fast and I can read them. Anyway, enough juicing you up. Let's get down to to what everybody seems to be talking about right now. I like to typically I like to rise above the day to day talking points here on DPS, but we cannot avoid this one. As everyone will know by now, the Iowa caucus was last night. We're recording this on Tuesday evening. It'll come out first thing on Wednesday, but it looks to be it it will be unresolved at that point. Uh, Just before you and I got on the call together, Eric, the Iowa Democratic Party released some of the numbers. Uh, somewhere around 62% of the numbers. It shows that Buttigieg is leading the race in terms of state delegates. However, our boy Bernie is leading the popular vote. I talked about this on the B-side last week with Daniel Marins, HuffPost writer Dan Marins, and my patrons will be well uh, informed about this. But for those of you in the audience who are not patron, first of all, shame on you. You should join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and get access to a weekly B-side. Unintended pitch here. 
But we talked about the fact that there is an electoral college style aspect to this Iowa caucus. Eric, uh, you've been uh, writing and thinking a lot about this. Talk to us about that and, and what it means. Sure. Well, yeah. So basically, you know, even I am still not like fully versed on all of the complexities of this ridiculous uh, contest that they run out in corn country. But um, but but basically the short answer of it is that Buttigieg's base of support is spread more efficiently across space uh, than Bernie Sanders support is uh, because of Sanders real outside support among young people who are concentrated in, in college towns and urban centers. Um, and precincts have like a certain number of delegates each that they're allowed to to disperse. And those the number of delegates they're allowed to, uh, to disperse is not like tied proportionally to the number of uh, caucus goers who happen to show up that night at their location. It's tied to turnout in previous elections, which is not necessarily doesn't necessarily correlate with turnout for the caucus. Uh, so anyway, by, by running up the score in these these college towns, uh, Bernie is in a situation where he, he wins the popular vote, but he gets a slightly lower percentage of state uh, delegate equivalents, um, which is normally the, the metric that the, the press uses to determine the, the winner of the election. We only have 67, I believe, percent in right now. But but if the current situation holds, then then it looks like he's going to become in a narrow second place. Uh, on the basis of this electoral college-esque mechanism. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get into New Hampshire, which is going to be on the minds of people who are listening to this later in the week because we're, we're up for another another big night uh, just next week in, in the state of New Hampshire where things look a lot clearer for Bernie Sanders and much more bleak for Buttigieg. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But you see Buttigieg sort of thumping his chest here about this victory. He was on CNN taken to task for claiming – victory before the numbers came out, uh, his spiel that he's pushing now, and you're going to see this narrative uh, emerge strongly from his campaign and his proponents in the media who will be jumping ship, I, I suspect, uh, from from the USS Biden onto Team uh, Mayo Pete uh, here, if they haven't already. His narrative here is that, well, I won in precincts and districts that went to Trump in 2016. But let's unpack that, shall we? That's the yeah. let's let's talk about the disingenuity of that statement. What's wrong with that kind of statement? Being that this is a fucking Democratic Party primary, mind you, this is the narrative that I can win. I'm electable in in these these rural corn counties. Yeah, uh, what's wrong with that? And, and does Buttigieg have any electability amongst the broader public, regardless of party affiliation? Yeah. So my my view is uh, that you know you're right. I think that you know. Bernie supporters have been guilty of this at, at times in the past, extrapolating from Bernie's strong support in like West Virginia's Democratic primary uh, to suggest that he would be a strong, you know, general election candidate there. You know, that may be true, but but to prove that claim, you can't cite results in a Democratic primary because they're just they don't there isn't a strong correlation between your ability to win a rural area in a primary where <clears throat> either a small percentage of uh, the population that is liberal, which, you know, uh, we we look at these red and blue maps and then like homogenize vast regions of the country, but pretty much almost every, any county in the the country, there's like at least like twenty percent of like liberals or or, or people who identify with the Democratic Party and, and lean left at least uh, on certain issues. Um, but so anyway, the fact that you perform well with that you know isolated group of of uh, Democrats in a, a red county doesn't necessarily tell us that you can win a majority in that county. And doesn't necessarily tell us about your about how uh, 
you know, diverse and broad your appeal is. And Buttigieg has been doing this, uh, you know, from the beginning of his campaign with this sort of kind of disingenuous framing of himself as uh, coming from the, the blue collar Midwest heartland when, you know, he's the son of a, you know, a Gramsci scholar professor at uh, yeah. Notre Dame and grown up in a college town. Um, I've been reading his father for for nearly a decade on, on Gramsci, one of the best Gramsci scholars I think out there. It's really bizarre yeah. that his son turned out to be a CIA plant. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, yeah, no comment. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, you're you're a respectable but, journalist. I'm not going to hold your feet to that to that fire. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I, I I like that uh, rumor overall, but I'm not going to endorse it. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about that because I mean, you're you're right. You're a, you're a critic of the kind of Pollyannish narratives that that you know. Uh, the, the chest thumping, rah, rah, yay, Bernie kind of narratives, which we need to hear that. We need to be brought down to earth. One of the things that I hear often that, that kind of peeves me is that I hear, yeah, Bernie, you know, Bernie has uh, the most support among cops and uh, soldiers, the troops, right? He has the most uh, donations out of all of the other candidates. Well, that might be the case, but just how much support do you suppose cops are giving Trump? Like four or five times the support. I mean, if you yep. look at it on a broad spectrum, the Democratic Party gets, I don't know, I mean, this, these are ballpark figures somewhere, but 30% of overall support. And then you sort of, you know, uh, distribute that amongst the various candidates. But Trump's sitting there holding strong, you know, if the, if he was included in these numbers with with a solid 60 to 70% of the donations in some cases. So it's not even close. And I think that like we really do need to get real about what the big picture Looks like ahead in your piece, your much lo- longer piece from today talks about what this this clusterfuckery that we saw in Iowa last night and, and into the rest of the week, bo- how that bodes for the general election. Do you think that we're we're making Trump's path far too easy in 2020? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot is going to depend on on how things play out. Obviously, I guess this goes without saying, but but in the next month, like I, the piece maybe is a little bit. Uh, you know, alarmist in its framing, uh, possibly influenced by the the clickbait incentives that I am subject to. Um, yeah. But uh, but but it, it is the case that, like, yeah, I mean, it, it, if you tried to script, how does Donald Trump want the Iowa caucuses to go Monday night? Uh, the Democratic Iowa caucuses. Uh, I don't think that you could have scripted a that much better of a show than, you know, uh, eight p.m. to one a.m. Just the, the the talking heads on every single cable network, just kind of like quietly seething at like the what the Democratic Party is the situation the Democratic Party has put them into, you know, where they they're now having to vamp for hours on end and uh, and ruin their their big uh, big ratings night uh, and for CNN right after the they ruined their their polling night their big poll reveal on Saturday yeah. um, and so there was this really just a lot of like yeah I mean I describe it as like a a five-hour-long infomercial for the Democratic Party's administrative incompetence that was like simulcast on all major news networks. You couldn't imagine um, a more terrible thing. You have you have an election uh, precinct official on the phone live with CNN who has been on hold with the state office to report their figures on hold live on CNN. Finally, they come back and and are hung up on almost immediately. I mean, this all this all played out live on air. I mean, this is a this is a nightmare. Uh, horror show for Democratic Party officials. And you, you saw the likes of people like Chris Matthews who were having mask off moments in their fatigue, kind of like you saw, you know, at 3 a.m. on election night uh, in 2016. 
you know, you see these real mask off moments. Um, you're proclaiming that Donald Trump thus far is the winner of the Democratic Party primaries. Is that is that uh, an exaggeration or is it going to be difficult for any of the Democrats to come back to come back from this? I mean, is there an organization in place before we talk about specific candidates to take on the Trump machine, given that he is an incumbent and the economy right now seems to be uh, pumping along just fine for many people? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, I, it, I, I don't know. I, I do think that the Iowa Democratic Party is not necessarily and the task that they had before them last night is like, I don't know if it's like necessarily indicative of the level of competence, like across the entire coalition uh, of organizations. You know, I think that we did see in 2018, uh, a lot of really impressive organizing by indivisible groups um, and, and also during the Obamacare uh, repeal fight and, and into the House races. You know, we, we've seen some signs of vitality in life within the Democratic coalition and obviously on the left side of it as well with, with what uh, it has achieved through electing AOC and, and uh, council members uh, uh, in Chicago and, and I believe also uh, in, in New York in the no IDC fight. So we've we've. We've had our uh, trial runs of, uh, you know, our, our, our mini battles over the course of the Trump era where we, we've gotten some signs of encouragement. But beyond the fact that it was just such a fiasco as a television presentation, you know, you also have seen in the wake of last night's results, like a lot of uh, a lot of paranoid uh, conspiracizing, in, in my opinion, on the parts of the, the, the Bernie left. And you've got the establishment, as you already referenced, like totally confused about where it is supposed to go now. And uh, we're going to have a, as I said before, it it seems to me that I don't see a quick end uh, to this. And I see a lot of ways in which the contradictions within the the party could, could be heightened and then not resolved. And you add that to the economy's ostensible outlook, and you're in for a really rough situation. It is the case that we have to focus on what we can control, um, and so that's what we emphasize. But it's also like nothing is going to impact what happens in November more than you know if like the coronavirus became like a truly like horrible pandemic and uh, you know crashed the global economy. Like basically just anything that 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 knocks growth and, and, and employment down, um, which I don't think anyone should be rooting for because I think we should that that's incredibly harmful to working class people, and we can win without that. But I'm just saying that, that a lot of this is going to be determined by external factors that we that we can't control. I think, you know, you, you raise a good point about the indivisible groups and things like that that were so instrumental during the, uh, you know, who tried to be instrumental in 2016, but were very instrumental in the midterm elections. Uh, but, I mean, we got an election in November. That's nuts. Yeah, 2020 is upon us. Yeah. As, as many people, uh, primarily guests that I've had on my show in the past, scholars of the Democratic Party, historians – who have studied the Democratic Party, the nature of its structure, show you know Adam Hilton, a professor uh, at Mount Holyoke, a political scientist, has referred to it as as a as a Swiss cheese. It has holes in it, and it's it's comprised of a number of coalitions that sort of come together around elections and a long and highly hotly contested primary. You have to believe you know will uh, at least delay the coming together of this. These coalitions, this kind of coalition that's going to be uh, necessary to to produce any kind of electoral machine for 2020. And so we should be, you know, sort of waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen here. And on that note, what happens next going into New Hampshire? You've got Bernie Sanders in, in a close second place. 
He's winning the popular vote. You've got Buttigieg thumping his chest, but he's polling. Buttigieg is polling around 12 to 14 percent in New Hampshire. He's a, he's a non-player. Bernie Sanders has a solid lead in New Hampshire. What's the picture that starts to emerge once you contextualize these Iowa results with New Hampshire? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with this kind of horse race stuff, we're all just spe- speculating. But um, but what I would say is that the things that I would consider historically, or at least according, I think, to Nate Silver's analysis, the winner of Iowa over the past like three or four decades has on average had a, like seven point polling bump going into New Hampshire, mm. which would be enough to make Pete competitive if it happened. The question is whether that that historical data is relevant to both the extraordinary circumstances of how the Iowa thing played out, the narrowness of, of Pete's uh, victory, and then uh, more basically just the the incredible speed and, and, and density of news cycles in the Trump era. It's not clear to me that an Iowa caucus victory can have the same impact just as like the Las Vegas shooting of a few years ago like was out of the news within a couple of days. Whereas like when I was in fifth grade and Columbine happened, that was like, oh, yeah. you know, a month's on end uh, story. And so when you consider that tonight's the state of the union, we're going to have the end of impeachment. And we still have this coronavirus uh, story lingering in the background. We have so many things going on. I'm not sure that Pete's victory is going to break through such that he gets that polling bump, uh, but, uh, but I don't know. So, so it's possible that you're going to see if not a, a significant polling bump, uh, a movement of donors, or at least some donors who have never really. I mean, I think that there's a lot of Democratic donors who recognize that, that Biden is not like necessarily in condition to be president, you know, where like their strategic play in terms of just winning the primary. I think the thing that would have made the most sense is for them to all like line up really strongly behind Biden. But I think a lot of them have genuine concerns about like his ability to actually like lead the country you know, given that I think a lot of them were not that impressed with him intellectually when he was still fully on the ball. And and now they see him, you know, struggling to complete sentences. And so I think they really want Pete to be viable, uh, or at least, you know, that there's a segment that does. So I think you're going to see some drift there. But I think that the main dynamic that we have now is that we have, or the, the one that I'm thinking about with these results, is that we've got three different moderate candidates that all have like a sort of a singular source of strength that the other two don't have. So you've got Biden, uh, who has a degree of goodwill with African-American Democrats um, that, that neither Buttigieg or Bloomberg, uh, you know, has a, a scintilla of, and in fact, both have issues that make it seem like a real challenge for them to catch up in that regard. Then you've got Bloomberg who has more, you know, money at his disposal than a, a lot of nation states. Um, and then you've got Buttigieg, who is a fresh face, who is not saddled by uh, a long record of sort of grisly, unseemly, uh, uh, actions. You know, maybe he's got a few, but like not, not, he doesn't have as many skeletons as Biden or Bloomberg. And he is more of a, more effective of a screen for voters to project their wishes onto. Um, and you know, you just, he's young, he's uh, kind of handsome, um, and you know, he's also would be history making in, in his sexual orientation. And so, uh, and has this, uh, I think greater appeal to Warren voters than to, than, than either Bloomberg or Biden has. So you have these three candidates who have these really disparate strengths that seems to me is going to make it very hard for any one of them to, to consolidate 
support. I mean, it, things could change rapidly. Maybe Biden just runs out of money completely. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've been but reminded by the, the fact that the, the upcoming primaries are very expensive, particularly Super Tuesday. These are massive states that require large operations. And Biden's war chest is, in, uh, you know, uh, incredibly small considering the fact that he has been the front runner for the past year. Uh, he was all but coronated. I mean, he all but received a coronation, you know, over the past 12 months in the mainstream press. And yet his war chest is is minuscule compared to, to the rest of the top, you know, three or four candidates. Um, so going forward, you know, I think I think Biden is is doesn't really have Biden's people are panicking right now. There's no question. Let's talk. Let's move right now by talking to someone who's conspicuous in her absence. Um, Amy Klobuchar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Okay, I'm per, I've been perusing, you know, the the results that we've got so far, these 67 some odd percent percent of, of results we were getting from the Iowa party uh, just came out a couple uh, an hour ago, a couple hours ago as at the time that we're discussing things. But I've been perusing the headlines and the various uh, news outlets and and you're seeing Buttigieg's name and face everywhere. Forget that Sanders won the popular vote. He's been virtually erased in the headlines anyway. Um, you know, Buttigieg leads tight race. Tight with who? Not like four or five people, tight with one other person, you know, name him. It's it's bizarre, but we're used to it at this point. But someone who just, uh, you know, eludes even headlines or even being buried somewhere at the end of a piece is Elizabeth Warren. She's not being discussed here at all. At one point, she was considered a front runner. At one point, uh, it was all but you know, taken for, as, as a given that a lot of the more kind of mainstream centrists were thinking about casting their lot with her as though she was someone who could – who could uh, snag both wings of the party in such a way to to gain a majority and overcome, you know, Biden's uh, increasing, increasingly frail mental faculties and a, a, a more kind of intransigent anti uh, anti establishment figure like Sanders? What happens to Warren going forward after Iowa? So I think the question that that I I feel like I don't have um, enough insight into is like exactly. Exactly how uh, plausible her ability to keep her, her campaign funded is going to be, because um, it seems to me that just my knee jerk thing is like that she sort of has two paths. One is that for the reasons that I was talking about, the fact that this seems unlikely to consolidate into a two person, like two people way out ahead of her. And then she's way back in third place. And what are you still doing here um, type of dynamic that could happen. But the fact that you've got Bloomberg, Biden and Buttigieg now all poised to stay in competition for uh, at least another uh, month, one would think. Um, the more finely diced that that share of the vote becomes, the more her possible segment uh, in, in coalition maybe becomes a high enough floor to to be competitive. And then maybe there is this sense of like, you know, eventually we're going to be in a position where. There's going to be, as you suggested before, this anxiety about how do we unite this coalition? And there's going to be the moderates over there, Bernie, and then Elizabeth in the middle. Uh, and so I could see her campaign potentially um, potentially seeing that as their route, that like, like the, if they can figure out a way to stay in the game uh, money-wise, and, and maybe they can pull out an improbable, uh, uh, least strong showing in, in one of these next states like Nevada, uh, where I think she has um, a good relationship with Harry Reid and his operation. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they can pull out a surprise and, and then sustain themselves and then be the unity candidate. Uh, you know, and the, the alternative uh, is that, you know, if 
if she wanted to um, to drop out and, and throw her support behind Bernie, then with this dynamic of the divided moderates, if you had a unified progressive wing and got Bernie's floor from you know twenty to thirty percent, he'd, he'd be in pretty good shape. Yeah, along those lines, you've been someone who I don't, I don't think this is you know um, out in left field, or I don't think this will take you uh, by surprise. But it's, it's been my perception, you know, reading you from afar. And having a couple interactions here and there over the past year or so that you've been someone who's been very much interested in maintaining the unity of this progressive block. Someone who's been very concerned about the rhetoric that's come from maybe some of the far left sectors. Someone who's been concerned about the way that uh, we have, you know, gotten our knives out in the heat of, of, of battle and maybe are creating various rifts between the PMCs over there with Warren <laughs> to use one side, uh, one of the, you know, the, the, the lingua franca of, of, of people like me, let's be honest, and Jacobin and some of the democratic socialists out there who have very uh, unkind things to say about Warren for a variety of reasons. I'm remaining agnostic here, just value neutral question posing here. And on the other side, you know, you have, you know, these, well, I just already sort of alluded to it. You have these sort of intransigent democratic socialist Bernie or bus types What's the state of this rift right now? You sort of mentioned sort of just, you know, in passing, well, you know, Warren could drop out and, and back Sanders. Uh, at this point, I'm not so sure about that. And I think a lot more people uh, on both ends aren't so sure about that. Do you think – do you take it as a foregone conclusion that Warren would support Sanders and maybe riff for a moment for us uh, on this divide in the progressive bloc? Sure. Um, I don't take it as a given. Uh, and I do think that it has become less likely as the events of the past couple of weeks and, and with the rising uh, personal tensions between uh, Warren and Sanders that, that we unfortunately witnessed in that bizarre uh, open mic thing. Um, but uh, so, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's certain. I do think it is the case that they, they have had a long, uh, productive uh, relationship in in Washington and that you know, they don't have a ton of ideological fellow travelers uh, in that town and in that chamber. And uh, so I do think there is a real basis for, you know, not like not a close personal friendship, but, but there is an, a, a, you know, an affinity there. Um, they, they, they do share adversaries. Uh, whether, whether Warren would be willing to uh, take the, you know, the significant risk of, 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 joining the uh the political revolution which it's with its slightly more sharp elbowed approach to contesting power in the democratic primary uh or party um at, at this juncture is uh is unclear to me I, I i don't think anyone can know that but but warren herself i do think that um you know she's a politician i think bernie is also a a, a politician and uh if bernie gets to a point where he looks strong enough where it's like it seems like warren can choose to make him or she at least has a plausible route to i can make this guy the nominee and then be owed a major position in the next white house if, if we win uh you know i i think that that could uh that could facilitate such an endorsement but I think it remains to be seen on the, the broader rift. I'm not sure. Yeah, I could, I could just riff. Uh, Let me ask you, yeah. let's rather than sort of go back. I've been, I've been uh, not trying. Cause that, that sounds, that's uncharitable to you. It's, it's both, it's mostly my fault and you're a very busy guy. I've been trying to get you on the show for 
for many months to kind of hash this out, have that kind of like great progressive versus democratic socialism debate uh, that that we're not having. We're really sort of throwing lobbing bombs and across the across that so-called rift in a variety of directions. And, and I think for some good reasons and some bad reasons, but you know, one of the I have a lot of very strong opinions. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Warren right now. I think the the move that she made a couple of month a couple of weeks ago was was uh, despicable. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. But but I have been interested over the past year in really getting to some of getting to the root of the disagreements, the theoretical disagreements, the strategic disagreements between so-called progressives and so-called democratic socialists. Where is there is there more commonality in practice? And difference and where there are differences, uh, how do they matter and in what ways? And I think in, in we really, we really missed an opportunity here as a progressive left in this country to, to really, to better articulate each of our respective visions. And I think I take, you know, I think Jacobin is doing, has been doing a really good job of trying to do this in the midst of all the kind of like ability, you know, the, the attempts to keep up with the, the news cycle and, and the clickbait and, and all the rest of it. And I think, and I think the progressives have been trying to do this in their own way as well, but things that have happened over the past week, uh, the past couple of weeks have made that uh, harder to do because there are a lot of very angry and, and hurt and feelings and emotions get in the way of, you know, calm, rational discussion. Tell me what you think Warren was trying to do a few weeks ago, leading up to the, the January primary. Yeah. Do you think this was uh do you think this was a maneuver? Yeah, so I I don't think so. Um but I don't know. Uh it, it's not something that I would uh be shocked to 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 learn was the case. Um I think that so I I would say that my read on the situation is that um you basically had a lot of Warren staffers and uh, the Warren campaign in general, you know, everybody is, uh, Jack Dorsey has gotten everyone in the political world almost addicted to Twitter. Yeah. Um, and they are, they're on that platform all the time. Um, and they are, you know, uh, Bernie's fan base, uh, is very strong and, uh, uh, very present online. And, uh, some of them, uh, you know, are, are, are not averse to, uh, to, to throwing some punches, and I think there was this slow build of like uh, teeth grinding among Warren people about, uh, you know, they're, uh, they don't have quite as good a stand army. And uh, anyway, I think that that informed the reaction to when that call script that by itself looks pretty innocuous of making this comparative electability argument. I think the sense that like they had been holding up their end of the no aggression pact more faithfully and maybe some of uh, the Sanders surrogates uh, and then the the broader army. I think that that informed why there was such a sharp reaction to the to the call script. Um, and then I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know how that story gets into CNN's hands uh, other than the fact that Warren did disclose this story to um, to reporters, including uh, some I know personally, you know, about a year ago uh, off the record which is itself, uh, you know, I think a little bit irresponsible or, you know, my, 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 my assessment of her handling of the situation is that if you do leak a private correspondence off the record and then it becomes on the record, whatever, and, and it potentially could have a, whatever. I, I don't think that Bernie Sanders personal punditry, whatever he said is like a relevant public issue that voters should be considering. Um, that's my 
whatever. Uh, but if you don't Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you are enjoying my interview with Eric Levitz. This was a fun chat, but it was also a challenging one. I hope that you're not throwing your smartphone across the room. (laughs) I do think, as I mentioned at the end of our interview here, I think it's important for us to talk to people with whom we disagree. Fellow travelers who don't always come to the same conclusions. I think there's a lot of value in that. And I hope that you're enjoying this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. With that being said, it's the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the three to four hundred some odd patrons of the Dead Punnett Society and support this podcast with your hard-earned dollars. Head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level that you are comfortable with. Subscribers will receive access to our weekly bonus episodes. Those are the B-sides. They have been coming out every week, and I intend to do that every single week as long as I can, as often as I can. I don't have a co-host, so I can't sort of scrap together (laughs) some, some crappy banter last minute if a guest cancels or if somebody's kid kid gets sick or whatever the hell happens. Schedules are hard to, uh, to handle. But I've been successful thus far in getting guests uh, twice a week for a little while now, and I intend to do that for the near future. So if you enjoy DPS, if you think that what we're doing here is important, if you want to face down the challenges presented by the corporate media bias that we are all witnessing in the wake of Iowa and going into New Hampshire and beyond, if you can't get enough of that good democratic socialist content, if you want to think very seriously about the implications of a Bernie Sanders presidency, if you want to follow the ins and outs, the intricacies of the primary season and beyond, I encourage you to become a patron of DPS Media. We cannot do this without the generous support of our patrons. And as I mentioned yesterday, I am starting a new follower campaign. Um, This is really important because Twitter and Facebook have instituted a, a near blackout of organic reach. It used to be the case that my tweets, my Facebook posts would be seen by people. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a pretty, pretty bare bones, basic ask. Hey, Facebook, if I like this here page, the DPS page, I'd like to see the posts that they put up whenever they put them up once a week, every day, every hour. It doesn't matter. Whenever I post something, I would, I would like my followers to see it. But that's not how Facebook operates. Facebook has clamped down on organic reach, and they now ask creators to pay them in advertising money for the followers who have voluntarily opted into seeing their posts to see the posts. It's absurd, but we can beat it. But it's going to take your shares. So I am starting a share campaign, and I have promised to give shouts out. Shout outs. Shouts out. Shout outs. Yes. (laughs) And I've promised to give shout outs to people who share my post. So in this episode description, you will find a tweet and you will find a Facebook post. Open up your iTunes, your podcast addict, your podcast catcher app right now and scroll to those posts. Pick Twitter, pick Facebook, whichever one you're on and share that now. Get the message out there far and wide about DPS, about this episode. Uh, A lot of people who are dipping their big toe 
into the political waters these days, thanks to the Bernie Sanders campaign, need to have a far more thoroughgoing education on these matters in order for us to be successful going into the future. And I think the DPS can play a really pivotal role there. We can't do it alone, but I think that we have a role to play. But we got to get the word out. So share, share, share. Shouts out to the people who did this last week. Lori Ray. Big shout out to Lori Ray. Vic Booz. Media Message F. Jordan on Twitter. Shouts out the media message. There were many others who unfortunately I was not able to see because of privacy settings. Facebook. Um, unfortunately, there were several people who shared the Facebook post. I wasn't able to see any of those people because of their privacy settings. <laughs> so I had dozens and dozens of people taking me up on my request to share this episode, but due to your privacy settings, I'm not able to see who you are. So if you share this thing on Twitter, make sure you retweet the post and then uh, give it a hashtag dead pundits. That way I can search the hashtag and I can see who's sharing the stuff and I can give them an appropriate shout out on the air. So apologies to the people whose privacy settings prevented me from giving them a proper shout out. But do know that I appreciate you and you're playing your part. For the rest of you, head over to patreon.com slash pundits and become a subscriber today to double your dose, double your pleasure of DPS each week. All right, back to the interview. Yeah, if, if, if you don't mind, if this isn't yeah. too presumptuous or too, I don't know what it is, but but you, you sound, Eric, you sound like a guy who's who's really like personally pained by the animosity on both sides. And it comes across in your writing. And I say this is, and in a very complimentary way, I mean this, uh, you know, and when I read you, you sound like a guy who is stuck in the middle of uh, a battle to the death and you're, you're just, and, and you're, you're coming from a, a really good place and a real, a really well-intentioned place where you're just desperately pleading with both sides to, to put their, their swords down and to come together for a common cause. I mean, you, it's, it really comes through in your writing. And, I, and again, I mean, in complimentary, it really comes through in your writing that you're trying to, you know, achieve some kind of ceasefire here for, for the greater good. Do, do, you, do you see that crumbling around you? It seems like maybe you're becoming a little bit more frustrated as, as the days and weeks and, and months go on here. Yeah, well, I, I would say that um, a few different thoughts on that. Uh, you know, it's very, it's impossible. Human subjectivity is a difficult thing to to get your, your hand around as far as like, you know, do I feel this way because uh, because of just like a, a personality aversion to conflict? Do I feel this way because I, you know, sort of occupy a, a social sphere that, that intersects with the, you know, the, the, the harder left and the, the liberal circles. But, you know, so I don't know, maybe, maybe my, my vision is colored by these things, but what I see, you know, the, the fundamental thing that I see is that the left is, is small and weak. Uh, it's punching above its weight because of its uh, clout in media and clout with, you know, culture, capital, rich, young college educated people. Um, but that we don't, there we, we don't have a lot of we don't have strong institutions we don't have strong trade unions and we don't yeah. have a lot of voters that are back so we, we can't afford factionalism within what we have and so that's my main I just think it's a luxury to uh, basically I, I think that some people my perception of it is that some people are like 
really eager for to find opportunities to heighten conflict and contradictions between left liberals and democratic socialists because they find these debates intellectually interesting. Uh, it also helps for like brand definition and for uh, and also because we share the same you know sort of sphere. So it is the the easiest easy people to kind of argue with that we share enough premises and we share enough common spaces. Um, but it, it seems to me like an indulgence uh, because we don't, that we're not, I would love to be in the position where the, the debate that really matters in the United States is between social Democrats and democratic socialists, but we're a long, long way from there. So my, my feelings when Warren was polling, maybe, I don't know, like eight, 10 points ahead of Sanders uh, in it looked like this is probably the best vessel for the progressive movement uh, for the broad left to deny Biden this nomination. I was less tolerant of people. Uh, I was seeing less tolerant of criticisms of Warren that struck me as hyperbolic. And I guess I still am, but, but, but more sensitive to this sort of situation and sort of the, that reversed once Bernie is polling significantly higher than Warren and he looks like the viable candidate I have a lot less tolerance for the Warren campaign making the decision to um, to not sort of release a, a, a temperature lowering sort of statement when this like whole uh, can a woman win thing comes out. And, you know, Warren sort of has the opportunity to release a statement saying, you know, Bernie expressed to me his concerns about, you know, the the way that Trump could weaponize misogyny or whatever, rather than this declarative, like he said, a woman couldn't win. You know, I mean, I've had, had lots of arguments with Warren supporter friends who, who who resent my my view on this, but um, but basically, you know, whatever. I just think that that the bottom line is that that I, I don't think that the Warren and Sanders factions can win and wield power um, without a significant degree of uh, coalescence, and that 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 fact, in my opinion, that that's a fact. Uh, you know, it needs to be reflected in in how. We think strategically, both sides think strategically, and in how they treat each other. Yeah. I Again, it's laudable. I think a lot of people, I wanted to sort of you know push you on this and give you an opportunity to speak. I think I have a lot of listeners, a lot of, you know, more, more, the more kind of not the casual listener, maybe patrons, maybe people who are really like in the, in the, in the dirt and the mud and the, in the shit on Twitter, so to speak, you know, people who want me to have you on the show and take you to task and call you out on the thing that you said about Bernie and Warren and it's bullshit. And she's a snake and fuck all this, you know, but I want to give you an opportunity to, to speak for yourself and to, to voice your perspectives. And it's one that, you know, I, I have issues with, but, but again, uh, this is why I think you're such a valuable voice on the progressive left because you're somebody who who does the you do the best you can not to be swayed by either side. And of course, people are going to agree sometimes, people are going to disagree sometimes. Um, but but I do think that 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 you're oftentimes pushing the conversations that we ought to be having, but we're not. I, I may quarrel with your framing sometimes, but at this, but 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 of course I will because you're a guy who tries to transcend the the kind of uh the framings and divisions that exist it does seem to me however though that the some of the things that some of the bernie supporters some of the anti-warren people have been saying have played out over time and yet it's important not to go back and and, and do some revisionist history and and uh, er, what is it uh it's something ergo propter hoc a fallacy wherein you know you something happens and therefore it was always this way. And I need to have 
Ben Burgess back on the show. Shout out to Ben Burgess. He's the left logic guy who does the fallacies. But it's important not to not to see what has unfolded due to various sort of accident and contingency and then go back to the past and then sort of um, project some kind of historical necessity, you know. So, But with that caveat, it does seem like some of the Warren critics, a lot of the, the, the cautionary tales have, have now come to pass. Do you think that Warren has fallen prey? I mean, in a, a, the more sympathetic interpretation would be that Warren has slowly but surely fallen prey to the demands of, of the battle. Uh, some of, maybe some of her advisors uh, have led her in certain directions. She has a lot of former Obama people with her. Um, it's my uh, impression. That's the charitable view, that she has sort of wandered into this. The more cynical conspiratorial view is that she was always a snake in the grass, just waiting to show her true colors as soon it was, as soon as it was, you know, uh, an opportune moment or a rose or what have you. You seem to reject both of those narratives. What's your interpretation now? And apologies again, we have so much concrete, you know, <laughs> so much concrete stuff to, to discuss now in the wake of Iowa. And I've got you sort of pontificating and speculating on these broad kind of uh, questions, but, but I really do want to go here with you. I think you have a lot of interesting, interesting things to say. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we both, uh, both find the broad questions a lot more interesting than the, the horse race bullshit. Yeah. Um, agreed. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, 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 I feel more strongly about the, my, my rejection of the, the, the second, um, narrative or at least i need i need some help you know understanding that one because i i do think that it it relies on uh, a revisionist history of, of warren's career and her you know leadership under the obama uh, during the obama years where you know i've said this before but you know it is not in my opinion a uh, like just like savvy careerist move as a democrat to decide that you're gonna like really make the Wall Street wing of the party's life just like really fucking hard. Like you're not just going to criticize them in the media, but you're going to deny Larry Summers a job that he wants very much. And you're going to organize progressive opposition so that Antonio Weiss doesn't get the job that he wants. Um, you know, these are, these are real concrete victories against the most economically reactionary faction within the Democratic coalition that she really spearheaded. Um, and, you know, I think that she drew more, more blood overall than, than Bernie did uh, during that administration. Does this mean that she has as uh, comprehensive a uh, radical egalitarian uh, worldview as Bernie Sanders? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, is she as interested and in, personally invested in the fate of the global left? I, I don't think so. But is she ideologically distinct from the rest of the, the path in the Democratic Party, is she one of the, the closest allies that Sanders and, and that, that the left has in in Washington? I think yes. Um, and and I think that it's uh, it's not helpful analytically uh, or, you know, ultimately strategically to give in to this Manichian impulse and to really, you know, clean lines of, of friend enemy. I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's productive. Yeah. No, I, no, say, I no, I typically agree with that. I, I think that there's a more histrionic kind of, like I said, conspiratorial, cynical view of that. And I've pushed back on this, not because I don't necessarily agree with the conclusion. It's it's I dispute the way that they came to the conclusion because how you come to the conclusion is everything, not just the conclusion. The conclusion being that 
I don't think that Warren has a kind of from below class struggle movementist track record that I trust such that, you know, I think that she obviously can overtake Sanders as a legitimate heir to this movement. That, that being the conclusion. But the way you get there seems to be really important here. And it seems that maybe you're disputing that that's where your dispute lies as well. There was a really great article that came out of Jacobin in 20, early 2019, almost about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago by Sean Good, uh, one of the, the, the lead editors there. And the title says it all. You can have Brandeis or you can have Debs. And I think to me, to my mind, this has been the most useful juxtaposition or opposition between the approaches of the two sides, not just the candidates themselves, because they're just two people. And quite frankly, they're two old people who won't be with us forever. <laughs> Unfortunately, mortality is a motherfucker. Uh, but more, most importantly, we're talking about the fate of the progressive and left and democratic socialist movement. And that's where the, the, the divisions and the distinctions lie there. Do you think – I mean do you remember that piece? First of all, I should ask you, do you remember that piece? Uh, have you read it? And, and I, I read it a long time ago. I remember the, the broader discourse around it um, more clearly because I think uh, David Dayan, I think, ended up writing a piece on, yeah. along similar lines. Yeah, and Dayan's um, another guy who takes Warren seriously, uh, probably far more seriously than I would prefer that he did. But 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 he's somebody who, who comes at this, I think, from the right way. We, we reach different conclusions – but we're fellow travelers insofar as we we view the divisions and the distinctions similarly. Yeah. Uh, what I mean, did you I, make of that debate? You know, I, I, I found it sort of frustrating, but I I, I mean I gotta re rethink this maybe, but I, I just I don't think that the, the, the distinctions between them I, I'm somewhat skeptical about how they actually manifest in the the near to medium term. I, I guess I would say this. I think that the, the thing that um this is slightly orthogonal to your question, but the where I um, do sympathize more with the Warrenite tendency has less to do with with policy vision where again I am skeptical about how salient it is, uh, but I I don't I'm not thrilled by like the anti-corruption, um, the emphasis on antitrust, uh, you know, that whole sort of I mean I I I think that I prefer Sanders' politics, and I prefer his overall, like what seem to be his policy priorities. Um, my view is that that at this point in time, but with the erosion of the labor movement, with the erosion of uh, civil society, civic communitarian institutions, and, and social atomization, um, and then these other forces of the, the increasing salience of, of immigration, I think that we're in a situation where where mass media just like dominates, monopolizes politics. Uh, people engage. I mean, I think that's always the case to a certain extent, but, you know, whereas previously a higher percentage of the population would interface with politics, get political information, get a orientation towards politics, maybe from the, the union at their workplace, from the church that they attended, from whatever other sort of organizations, that it's really increasingly, it's a monopoly on, on, on the media that they consume. Is, is shaping how they engage with politics. And uh, I think that like suburban women, uh, suburban professional class women, you know, of, of different, on different strata within that broad class uh, are more uh, adjacent to our media ecosystem than a lot of disaffected non-college educated voters. 
And I think this is relevant to whether or not we can, who we can build and who we can make into reliable uh, members of our coalition. And I think that the, the, you know, the experience of Corbyn in, in Britain has led me to feel more confidence in the sense that like uh, in the near term, until we actually build institutions that are like in, in these communities that, you know, are really where all the sort of the people who've been the core or the, the modal, you know, DSA supporter, the sort of overeducated, underemployed, you know, urban dwelling leftist, you know, until we actually have that broader social base, I, I don't, I'm not sure that we can reach uh, those voters as easily as we can radicalize, you know, the, the indivisible and pod save America crowd and get them, nudge them towards our, our view of things. Um, and so, so I, I basically, I, I see that and I see working sort of, I see the Democratic Party as, as more the kind of the only game in town is my, that, that, that's my inclination that, that leads me towards Warrenism. It's, it's, it's the political theory of like, what is, what is possible right now? What is the possible coalition? What does it look like? These are the things that, that lead me more in a, a Warren direction, whereas sort of my aesthetic and, 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 and uh, ideological preferences lead me to Bernie. And now that Bernie is, you know, you know, I, I, so I'm, I'm thrilled that, you know, Bernie is now, uh, that, that somehow uh, a heart attack turned out to be a magnificent <laughs> thing for his campaign. Yeah. And now he's actually in way stronger position than I ever dreamed that, that he would be. Um, you know, so I'm thrilled with that. Uh, you know, so now my pragmatic instincts and my ideological are, are lined up. But, um, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, again, I, I just want to apologize. I'm not apologize for the question, but just to su- suggest that, you know, like I said, I've been trying to have you on for the past several months to, to have this grand democratic socialism versus the progressivism uh, debate or discussion, a meeting of the minds, if you will. Uh, but but here we are. We're having that conversation in the midst of what was supposed to have been um, more of a horse race style show. Let's get back to the horse race and we can sort of weave in some of these larger kind of uh, more theoretical view from, you know, 10,000 feet up where you are now at the Intelligencer blog. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> you and your PMCs. I have some patron questions. I want to get to these before we before we go. Is the DNC crooked or incompetent or both? And what do you make? This comes from Richard Mishuk from uh, overseas. He uh, is over there in the UK somewhere. I believe he's an, an Irishman, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, Richard. I'm, I'm blowing your uh, your ethnicity, your cover, well, your your nationality, rather. There have been some rule changes over the past couple of months. And Tom Perez has appointed some suspicious characters to oversee this nomination process. Uh, we've had some figures on the left. Friend of the show, Adolph Reed Jr., for example, go on Rising with Crystal Ball and Cigar and Jetty. And suggest that there is just no way in hell that they're going to let Bernie win and they might even kill him. <laughs> Adolph is brilliant. He's also, I remind people, as brilliant as he is, he's 72 and he gives zero fucks. So uh, <laughs> to the rest of us uh, who who have uh, long lives to live and, and aren't um, as liberated as a guy like Adolph, what, what do you think? Do you think that the DNC and the Democratic Party mainstream that has their fingers on on the, the 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 sources of power in that party, do you think there's any way that they're going to allow a Sanders nomination to go through? I, I think so, but not without uh, a fight. So I, I think that uh, there are a couple things. One, I, I do think that um, I'm not like a, a really granular expert on the 
the formal um, structures of the, the Democratic Party, but my my strong sense is that the left kind of uses the DNC as kind of like a, a totem or like a fetish or a synecdoche for like the, the broader establishment, because it is like one organization, not a particularly, not necessarily the most, the most powerful like entity within the Democratic like penumbra. Um, and a lot of times, like, you know, the Iowa caucus mess last night, I think is largely not attributable to, to the DNC, but to the local party, obviously they're connected. But, um, anyway, I think that, uh, there's just sometimes like an exaggeration of, of, of the, the power and reach of, of that specific, uh, committee. Um, that said, I think that, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that I, I personally believe that, that a large percentage of the, the, the hardcore anti-Bernie element within the, the DNC and Democratic Party sincerely believe that he is going to get crushed in the general election. They have, you know, their formative experience of McGovern and the Reagan years, and they have a conventional understanding of electability that, that leads them to think that it's no dice. I think there are other elements that obviously fear his, uh, his, his politics and what it, you know, potentially the threat that it poses to their, their ideological convictions. I think it is a mix of those two things. I, I think that the, 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 the faction that is that genuinely would rather would rather lose to Trump or or is uh, opposes Bernie primarily out of the sense that even with you know a pretty conservative Senate that he his brand of politics is just such a threat. I think that that exists, but I think that, that is not the entirety of the the establishment opposition. Um, as for like what and, and so I think because of that. I think that when it gets to a point where it look if Bernie is able to get to the point where to prevent his nomination, he's assembled a plurality of delegates is to lose the the general election in a landslide. There's going to be a cleaving between those who are sincere in their electability concerns and those who are not. And then we'll be able to count heads and, and know what, what, what that is. But uh, my sense is that there's just not enough people in the party who want to be out of power to, to sabotage the nomination if he's able to withstand um, if he's able to, you know, get through all the hoops. Uh, and the bottom line is Sanders does not have a, um, he does not have an orbit or a world large enough, uh, to staff a full administration. Like there are going to be plenty of jobs, uh, for people from Roosevelt, from cap, the, the campaign has worked with the center for American progress on yeah. some of its policies. So like, we, we uh, don't, we don't, I've been, I've been harping on this for years. We do not have the kind of, uh, practically oriented policy minded, you know, cadres necessary to staff uh, an executive. Um, yeah, there's some exceptional examples here and there, but the bottom line is like a wide swath of the democratic policy class, democratic professional class is going to have jobs in the Sanders administration uh, that they will not have in a Trump administration. You know, so it, I, I think it gets a little bit, a little bit overhyped. I think that the, that the absolute like revanchist element is there, but I, I think it's, I mean, it's an open question what the size is, but my sense is that it's not as big as, as many Sanders supporters think. Yeah, these are real concerns. I think um, the the at least I don't want to say failure of the Corbinite movement in the United Kingdom, but the the, the brief um, the setback over the long haul of the Corbin movement should should prove uh, should be enough proof for us to to be very cautious and careful about our, our about our prognostications. You're yeah. doing an event. Sense. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just to be clear, like I, so what I'm saying is that I, I don't think that if Sanders gets the convention with the plurality of delegates, I think he will be the nominee. Okay. 
So you don't um, think the not, DNC can can sink his his chances if he has the votes if he has if he has the people behind him? I mean, if it's maybe if it's like a really tiny plurality and they've just like spread the votes like so thin, but if he has anything like resembling a democratic mandate, I think that they are going to seek accommodation, not uh, not blow the thing up. But there, a lot of forces within the party are going to do their their best to make sure that doesn't happen. So I'm not saying that there's not going to be an aggressive negative campaign and attempts to uh, to smear and, and, and destroy Bernie. I think there will be. I'm just saying that the, at the level of like formal like shenanigans at the DNC, I, I doubt it. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's no question. We, we could have a completely separate discussion about what kind of barriers he will face if, if he's in office. You know, I mean, we saw this even with uh, Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labor Party. You have the the entire staffers and the civil service sort of bent against him. Um, you know, that these are these are questions on the horizon that we will absolutely be tackling on DPS. Uh, should Bernie be the, do- the nominee, we'll be obsessing over these. Uh, but but that, that's for another day. You're doing an event for Jacobin this month. I'm really pumped about that. Um, you're doing an event in, in, in New York City with Jacobin. You're someone who has, on the one hand, been, been quite critical of the narratives that have emerged around Bernie and Warren and the rest of it uh, at Jacobin. But you're someone who refuses to give up on the democratic socialist left. You're a progressive who really, uh, you know, you, you pit yourself as someone who's a fellow traveler. What, what is, what is your talk to, what is your flirtation with the democratic socialist left being that you yourself, as you've spelled out in, on many, you know, in many instances here today, uh, you don't consider yourself a part of it, but you are a fellow traveler. What is your, what's your stick here? I mean, is, is this is this sort of a, a larger a vision of, of where the progressive left is headed in the next ten years? What kind of left? What kind of progressive left scene are you are you trying to, to build and take part in here? I don't know, maybe this is a sort of a too big, too grandiose of a question or of a framing or what have you. You're just one guy, just one journalist. But I, I just I find you interesting, Eric. I don't know if that's clear. <laughs> Yeah, yeah uh, I no, really I, do. Uh, you're, you're like a rare bird. And, and, and some days you piss me off when I'm reading your articles on, on my smartphone. And other days I think, man, that, that's a really thoughtful, important question. But, but nonetheless, I find you always worthwhile. Right. Well, I appreciate that. I, um, so I think that uh, start off with, I don't know what it matters, but uh, I, I don't know whether it makes sense to identify as a socialist, given that, you know, I kind of think that it would be better if Bernie Sanders didn't identify as one uh, for electoral reasons. I would love to, I, I'm really compelled by the, you know, the idea of, of socializing capital ownership. Uh, I like the minor plan. I, I like Bosker's book. Okay. Good um, recovery. I was gonna say, don't write that article about, you know, pulling back from socialism because I'll lose more tooth enamel, but uh, <laughs> yes. sorry, go on. Um, yeah. So uh, that's all like appealing to me. I just, I don't think that it's relevant to, to current, current day struggle at this point. And so I, I don't, you know, so there's that. And then I just don't, uh, as I suggested, um, sympathize with all of the sort of the, the tactical and sort of strategic kind of package that tends to come with the democratic socialist movement at, at this, this juncture, I, I wouldn't say that I'm like an, not a socialist or an anti-socialist. It's just whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's for another episode. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get there at some point. I promise but, once the horse race is over and the electioneering is, is finished. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I was not as involved in um, as politically active and politically aware during the early Obama years as, as I am now. And 
Yeah, during the Obama years, you know, I, I really uh, very strongly identified and found, uh, you know, community with people who were alienated by, you know, the persistence of the drone war, the, the way the financial crisis was handled. And I found, uh, you know, Jacobin a, a really vital resource in, in, in trying to figure out, you know, why, why things had gone as they did. Um, and to, and just the, yeah, to, to take a more, to integrate political economy, you know, into my understanding of, of how, uh, of how politics plays out in this sort of the, you know, the, the fact that just like so much governance and so much, and so much policy and so much power is not happening, uh, in the realm that is coded as politics, um, you know, and, uh, and, and so much of what happens in that realm that we're all looking at is determined by this other, these other, uh, realms in which power is exercised. And there wasn't enough. I mean, not that it didn't exist. You had, you know, you've always had people like, I guess, like Robert Putner at the prospect and there've always been progressives who have been good on political economy, but at least in my casual, whatever, uh, reading, you know, I, I found more of that on the socialist left. And, uh, so yeah, so, so I don't know. So, and if you look at what I was writing in, in 2016 and in 2017, to a certain extent, I, I was more sold on, um, on some of the stuff that I now sort of disagree with Jacobin about. Uh, I wrote, um, a, a couple pieces, you know, on the, the, the class tensions within the party and the, the danger of this suburban strategy. Um, and, uh, but I just in, in, in just like sort of looking at how things played out and then like sort of studying polling on, on, you know, various economic questions. I, it just has complicated my view of, of what, uh, what the constraints of a cross class coalition will be in the current context and then the possibilities for forming, uh, you know, this, this more, uh, conventionally sort of, uh, socialist or, or left wing coalition. Um, and so there've been things like that where basically just, my and and again, you know, I I don't know how my uh my conscious mind and my rationality is influenced by changing circumstances in my social and economic life. Uh, you know, I, I try to be aware of that and to um, check my assumptions. You know, on the basis of like, is this a convenient position for me to be arriving at uh, from this or that angle? Um, and I, I try to do it mainly by at least what I think I'm doing is, you know, if if I really want something to be true. If it's, if, it's, if it's convenient for me normatively, um, but fundamentally the question before me is not a normative question, it's an empirical one, I want to treat my, the, 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 the conclusion that is, uh, you know, convenient for my normative proposition with a little bit of heightened scrutiny yeah, out of a skepticism, out of a reflection that, you know, what I do know about how human cognition works is that I'm going to be selectively processing, you know, what, what, what comes into my awareness to try to fit it. So and and who knows if that you know becomes its own i don't know whatever it becomes a whole psychodrama but basically my my experience over the past couple of years uh really you know learning i feel a, a lot about politics and in in reading and writing about this stuff all day every day and and you know almost barely escaping it in my personal life is that i've just found myself uh coming to conclusions that are in, in tension with uh with jacobin's orthodoxy and, you know, I still, I find their work really intellectually stimulating. I, I think, you know, Seth Ackerman's, uh, you know, piece on market socialism and on the party system, I found like really stimulating stuff. And then there's, there's tons of good stuff in that, that magazine. Uh, and the, the graphic design is, is so wonderful. It really is. Um, yeah. 
but but I do for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I have disagreements. Yeah, I, mean, I think it'd be, but again, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that event. Uh, people should, in the New York City area, should attend that event. I don't have the dates or the specifics, but people will look that up. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that it's really, really important that this, as a very sta- staunchly democratic socialist podcast, uh, that, that we maintain relations with people like yourself, uh, not only to sort of, not only as a sort of a pragmatic concern for the realities of our political scene as it exists today, Rather than the one we would want to have, we need to grapple with the one that we have, but also because we need to push each other and challenge each other in a variety of ways. And, um, and that's why I, I, value, I value our interactions and your existence. As a final question, to tie this all together, let's talk about the, the primaries. Let's talk about 2020. Let's talk about broader theoretical and strategic, strategic questions. It seems that some of the recent events – fly in the face of some of the hard realities that you try to countenance in your in, in, in developing and formulating and articulating your political um, political essence, if you will. <laughs> These ridiculously tough and absurdist questions that I've been pitching to you for the past hour. Um, but what I what I mean by that is that, you know, you've got the emergence of the squad, the so-called squad, minus Presley, of course. She's a she's an odd one. Carries a lot of weight uh, on the political scene. Um, the emergence of of these Bernie backers who are relentlessly campaigning for him across the country. It really does seem that the energy, if if you look at the broad progressive left, it really does seem that the energy is on the on, on the Bernie side, and it's not yet materialized in practice. But there's a tremendous amount of potential there, which is why I ask you this question: Where do you see the progressive left movement in the United States in the next ten years? 10 years on, are you, are you, uh, <laughs> heading up the, the op-ed page at the New York times <laughs> um, spouting principled left progressive, uh, narratives on a daily basis, or are we still relatively marginal and fighting amongst ourselves? Well, I think by 10 years, I probably cashed out and I'm at the national review writing really nuanced uh, <laughs> essays about race science. Uh, Same. Yeah. I can't wait uh, for that. Oh, it's, uh, that's going to be so cushy. I, I hear they're like, their lounge is fantastic. It's uh, stocked with the, the finest of scotch and uh, whiskey and all around. Anyway. Better. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most hopeful thing we've got going right now is, you know, Bernie's numbers with people under 35 um, and socialism's numbers with people under 35. I mean, there's a, there, there's a reason to be hopeful for the medium-term future. And I, I have friends who are more um, sort of more extreme versions of me where they, you know, insist that they've got, uh, you know, socialist ideological orientation, but their read on what is possible is is very cramped. You know, they sort of see like we have like a kind of, we need to just be in a defensive posture of like preventing uh, you know, ethno-nationalism, like authoritarian ethno-nationalism or like fascism until the boomers, enough boomers die. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not quite there, but I, I do think that like we're in, but at the same time, we've been losing, losing for a long time, uh, both the, the you know, self-avowed sort of left and the, the broad like left of center have both been losing for a long time in different ways. Um, and we're now in a position where it's going to be very hard to claw back into the game. And I don't know exactly. I mean, the, the, the big issue for the next 10 years 
to me is like what what happens with the with with this constitutional order that is um, that appears poised to be increasingly in tension uh, with majoritarian uh, sentiment and opinion. It already is, um, but when you have this pattern of uh, migration of young people away from certain small rural states and, and concentrating in these these cities, uh, you know, coastal or sunbelt or otherwise. Um, Combined with the increasing polarization of college and non-college voters uh, uh, among whites, combined with this decline in ticket splitting where people every election cycle are voting more for the same party at every level, you put those things together. And, and you know, in 2018, Democrats had their, their best midterm cycle, their bed, best midterm popular vote election since, uh, I believe, right after Watergate, eight point landslide. We came away with two fewer net two fewer Senate seats than we had before. If that map, if those senators, that same incumbent Democrats were up in a normal presidential year, we probably would have lost ten seats. And so, if these trends continue, um, basically we we have a chance to maybe eke out a trifecta in 2020, and then somehow we need to convince 51 Democrats to like admit new states, or I mean something. We, we're, we're we're in a real crisis. Yeah. We're in a real crisis. Yeah. The contradictions um, the, are mounting. Uh, between it, it, the judiciary and the Senate, uh, we're, we've sure. got real fucking problems for the next decade um, because it, it, there's a there's there's this decent reason to think that the right is going to be able to just lock that shit up and uh, not allow a Democratic president to appoint judges um, and then fill in all the vacancies when a Republican comes in, uh, you know, uh, and, and you're going to whatever, end up with this real like real, real um, anti-majoritarian reactionary rule through juristocracy and through a broken, uh, you know, Congress. This isn't inevitable, but it's, it's a very significant possibility. And, it, and it's a, a weaker versions of it seem probable to me. And it puts a real constraint, I think, on what can be achieved without um, without some kind of radical break in uh, the American public's uh, attachment to, um, to 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 sort of procedural conservatism. You know, you had polls at least as of a year ago. I, I think it may have changed after Kavanaugh, but I'm not as sure. Until very recently, and I think still, John Roberts has a positive approval rating among Democrats. Um, so that's a problem. Oh, you put a robe on him and suddenly he's a saint. You know, I mean, we love this procedural institutional kind of uh, fealty. I mean, it, it, there's two, there are two ways you could look at this, right? One, one way is to suggest that, well, you know, th- therefore the prospects of the left are virtually nil going forward because the institutions are stacked against them, right? The other way, which I think is the much more rational way, once you really get down to it, is that, well, this this exactly proves why the kind of um, sort of counter-institutional social and class power that's preached by, you know, that, that's pushed by the democratic socialist left is so important because you're going to need these kind of uh, counter-social forces, to push against and, and bend the will of, of our institutional, uh, you know, apparatus that, that is increasingly under pressure in, in the midst of these contradictions. Um, and to me, that is exactly why I'm here at the end of this episode, Eric Levitz, to invite you to join the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, I will say that, uh, that, that I don't disagree with, with any of that. Um, I think that I think that's all really important. And I, I find uh, Jane, uh, I think McAlevey's uh, work sort of really interesting in terms of trying to think about how to, given our limited resources, how do we, uh, you know, create uh, 
the ability to exercise power in the economy, uh, you know, by, by targeting increased sectors for unionization drives. And I mean, and, and, and I think that that's all really vital and important. And uh, I, I'm glad that the DSA, uh, you know, exists and, and hope that it, it really finds really effective ways of uh, building power outside of the electoral uh, sphere. When, when I say that I lean more towards the I would say that I lean more towards the Warrenite, whatever sort of ethos in the electoral realm. Uh, you know, it, it's not, I, I don't think the electoral is sufficient, but I think that, uh, you know, when in Rome you do as the Romans do, when, when in the electoral realm, it, it, it requires a different, in my view, a sort of uh, thinking about uh, how, how, how to maneuver um, and how to get, you know, I think it's really important to just have people who are just in, even if they're not quite aligned with you, if they're like in your coalition, they're dependent on you and they're pliable. And then if you actually do build that power in civil society, they're, they're going to bend for you. Um, they're not going to maybe lead on it, you know, but, uh, but they're going to be, they're, they're, they're going to be workable. Um, and I think uh, they'll that's really fall important. in line once the, the dominoes start to, to, to yeah. head in a certain direction and whatever. So I think there are some like tactical, you know, tensions between maximizing the number of like pliable pieces on the board versus like, you know, uh, real, real, Died in the wool, um, democratic socialists uh, in the electoral sphere. Yeah, and but, that's always been. Let's be clear. That's always been the case, even in, in the the real the real heydays of labor oriented socialist strength. You know, whether you want to call it out as the nineteen thirties, the nineteen sixties, seventies, what have you. Um, it's always been the case that there's been a, a real died in the wool cadres that have pushed things. Um, they're institutionally rooted and grounded, have power in sectors of society that that cause things to move or stop if need be, and and people sort of go along with it. Th- you know, this is this is the same as as it ever was in that sense, right? I think it's important for us not to romanticize the past and 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 to project our our present in this really uh, mythologized, you know, historical relief. Um, so, yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, um, I have one last question. I say sure it for last because it's so important and so reasonable of a question. It comes from a patron, John. John, you know who you are. You're an asshole. But he wants me to ask you, who's going to win the primary? Uh, <laughs> a t- yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I, I really, if I, if I knew. But um, I, 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 I'll just say that I think that Bernie has a better chance than than any previous time you could have interviewed me in this yeah. this cycle. So if I ask you on Sunday, uh, he's you know versus today, he's got a better chance today than on Sunday for sure. Yeah, I mean, but the bottom line is that well, I, I wrote about this in the last thing I just posted. But so my my analysis on how I went went for Bernie is that uh, overall good, uh, but you know the the concerns are there that. The fact that he does, you know, worse on second realignment than he does on first. This isn't a perfect proxy for the rest of the campaign, but it does seem to be the case that he has a uh, his base, its size and its uh, commitment, level of commitment and tenacity is unrivaled to any other candidate's base. But he's also unusually unpopular as a second choice among supporters of all their candidates except for Warren. So this is one issue that he's got to deal with. And then the other thing is that it does not appear we don't have full results yet, but the available evidence suggests we did not see any kind of, you know, really drastic turnout surge uh, or drastic increase in, uh, you know, uh, first time caucus goers in, in mobilizing disaffected non-voters. To the extent that that is a, a critical part of his theory, um, 
we, we don't have a proof of concept yet. And it's concerning the caucuses. It, it is more demanding on regular people um, than, than, than primaries. And so, you know, we can discount it with that. At the same time, on the other hand, we've had months and months and months to focus on this really ge- somewhat geographically limited space to pound the pavement, to knock on 100,000 doors. And if that concentration of resources did not yield a like uh, game-changing reshaping of the electorate, it's still possible, but, but we don't have a basis right now for, for why we would expect when those resources are spread more diffusely across space that we're going to be able to achieve what we couldn't in Iowa, what the campaign could. Um, so, so that's concerning, but, but those concerns are mitigated by the fact that Biden came in fourth and Pete came in first, and now you've got the moderate split, and you're probably going to have a large field for a long time. And so Bernie's high floor uh, makes him is a bigger strength than it was uh, you know, previously, and certainly than if Biden had won. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's all very reasonable. And these are all I mean, one one. I have one minor quibble. It's my impression, anyway, based on the polling that I've seen, that a large number of Biden's second choices are actually for Bernie Sanders. Is that, is that not still the case? That uh, you know, what? I haven't checked recently. I think that's gone down, but but that, that is that okay. is true. I, I was operating on yeah on this sort of ingrained presumption that Biden's going to be around. Uh, but but you're right, yeah. he might not be. If 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 yeah. if uh, we've if I was going to say we as though the Jacobin left and and my uh, uh, off my off often uh, had guest uh, Branko Marchetich has single handedly sunk Joe Biden. I think it's actually his uh, creeping senility that has sunk himself. But um, yeah, I think that if Biden bows out, we could see a lot of those people going for Sanders. But but this is another question and and sets us up for another episode in the future. You've been very. Uh, very, very generous with your time and and my meandering, hyper-theoretical uh, 10,000 feet questions as well. Um, I've enjoyed this a lot. You're, you're someone that, like I, I said, you know, you're writing. It, it, it makes me angry sometimes. Uh, I really appreciate and enjoy it sometimes. I really enjoy it sometimes, but I always appreciate it. Um, yeah, well, so, I, think, and I think we need more people uh, reading people that make them angry and, and talking agreed. with them. I think that's good. Agreed, so. which is exactly why I had you on the show. And and dear listener, this is exactly why I submitted you to a guy who uh, it's oftentimes, I'll be, uh, you know, I'll just put it out there, oftentimes espouses uh, positions that, that um, regular listens, listeners of my show would find um, frustrating. But I do think it's important that we grapple with these things and we push each other. So uh, open invitation to come back on the show once the horse race aspect of this thing kind of dies down. Uh, It may seem impossible to uh, conceive of this where we stand right now, but at some point this too shall pass and we will get back to the larger theoretical and strategic questions that will be plaguing us for many decades to come. Eric Levitz, everybody check out his pieces. I will link to the relevant ones in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us on BPS. Yeah, thanks for having me.